KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. It's just a good conversation with somebody that you didn't know you were interested in. I'm Matt Leon, and this is One on One. I came up to pinch it against Ferguson Jenkins. He throws hard, had really good stuff, good curveball slider. Jenkins kept throwing the ball away, and I just kept flicking my bat and following it off, following it off. I was sitting on that fastball on the inside part, and that's where he threw it, and I hit it in the upper deck. He never threw me an inside fastball again. Never. And our guest this week, Mike Rokosinski. He is a former Philly. He was a member of the Phils back in the early 70s as that team that won the 1980 World Series was just kind of starting to come together. Mike, thanks so much for the time. You're quite welcome. Thanks for asking me. So these days you live in Florida, is that correct? Yes, we moved here uh, in 2017. We moved down to uh, Davenport, Florida, which is just outside of uh, Disney World, Orlando. And as soon as we got down here, about two, three weeks after, we got hit with a hurricane. (laughs) Welcome to town. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Do you miss this part of the country up here? I know you have family still up here in the Delaware Valley. I really do not. I come up there for the holidays. I like to come up sometime usually in spring to see my two grandsons play baseball. Usually there for maybe a week, 10 days. But the holidays, Christmas, my wife and I come there. We just can't. We're so old now that we just can't handle the the cold weather any longer. Not like we used to when we were younger. So let's talk about your career in baseball. Growing up, was baseball the main sport for you? Or were you a kid that played whatever was happening at the time? I was fortunate enough to live directly across the street from a huge park. So I was always at the park. But baseball was my primary sport that I played. In the fall, we played football, usually tag you know, tag or touch football. In the wintertime, I wasn't much of a basketball player, so I skated. I was a hockey player. Those were the three major sports that I played. Yeah, I, I was fortunate again, like I say, because I lived so close to the park. I was always outside. Many a times I got my fanny whipped because I didn't come home for dinner when the streetlights came on. When does baseball start to become the main focus for you? Probably five or six years old. My dad was a baseball player and wasn't fortunate enough to uh, play professional baseball. His family came from Europe. They were uh, hands-on type of people. They laborers, basically. Just couldn't imagine someone making a living playing a, a sport. So they kind of frowned on that part. But my dad was going to try to make my brother and myself play baseball. I, if it wasn't for him, I probably wouldn't have had the success that I had. He wasn't the easiest coach to play for. It's very, very demanding. But if, again, like I said, if it wasn't for him, I don't think I would have been fortunate enough to get to the big leagues or play college ball and stuff. So you grew up in Illinois, correct? And you went just to- outside, just outside of Chicago in a town called Evanston. Okay. And then you go to Southern Illinois for college. When did you talk about, you know, him pushing you and a big reason why you you got where you were. Do you remember a time growing up when it started to crystallize for you that you had a chance to take baseball further than than a lot of kids? Because I think every kid dreams of being a pro baseball player. But was there a time when that started to, to, you started to think, man, this could really happen for me? Well, playing Little League Baseball, I I don't hate to say this, but I I was better than the average players that were on, on the teams. So I thought in myself that that I could possibly be a baseball player. I used to watch baseball all the time because being in Chicago, we could watch the Cubs in the afternoon and we could watch the White Sox at night. So I saw two games per day, basically. When I got a little bit older, 
13 and 14 years old, I really didn't have the success that I was having when I was younger. Players were getting a little bit better, and I don't think I really had the desire to try to improve. I was having other distractions, whatever they might have been. I'm not sure. But I, I just didn't really want to play. My dad was persistent, would not let me quit. I made the commitment I was going to play. Thank goodness for that. The latter part of my last year of playing back home, it was called Pony League, 13 and 14 euros. I started getting better and got better and better and became one of the better players in the league. After that, things just kind of made me think that, yeah, there was a possibility. But the first day that we went to high school and we went to try out for baseball there. Now, my high school was very large. We had two freshman baseball teams. We had an A team and we had a B team. Well, if I wasn't going to make the A team, I wasn't going to play. But I wasn't picked. I wasn't one of the popular kids. I mean, I wasn't one of the ones from, as we would say, North Evanston, where more of the uh, well-to-do people were. And, well, nobody knew me. So I, I didn't play. I got talked into going out and starting to play b-ball from a fellow that uh, you would never think in a million years he could do any kind of athletic event. But he convinced me into doing it, and we started to play, and I started to enjoy it. And the next thing you know, one thing led to another, and I really, really became a, a good, good baseball player, very good baseball player. Southern Illinois for the college choice. Did you want to stay close to home or did they just push hard for you? How did that come together? Well, let's go back to my dad. We went, we looked at a couple different colleges and we went down to Southern Illinois. We drove down there about a six and a half hour drive, I guess. And we met the coach and he started talking about the program, about going to school, about all the things that would be offered to me to make sure that I went through school, that I stayed eligible and such. Well, my dad was so convinced when we were finished having dinner and such, and we were starting our drive home, he just looked at me and he told me, he said, this is where you're going to school. <laughs> I didn't have a choice, <laughs> but I was thrilled to death that he chose that. He was a great, great coach that I had at Southern Illinois. So as you're in college, do you remember the point when you started to notice pro scouts? Well, I was fortunate enough to have scouts looking at me when I was a uh, sophomore in high school. Okay. I had, I had, I was a pitcher originally, not a outfielder, or whichever. And because of the pitching prowess that I had, I had people looking at me. I had scouts from Kansas city, Cincinnati, Pittsburgh, the Dodgers, you know, coming and actually talking Well, my dad, talking to my dad and talking to my uncles who used to come and watch all of my games. I really didn't have any kind of association with them specifically other than going to some tryout camps. But other than that, yeah, I, I was fortunate enough to be able to have people looking at me when I was 16, 17 years old. So was it a decision? Like, was there a chance you might've gotten drafted out of high school and, or was college, was your dad, were you playing college regardless of what happened? I was going to college. Okay. There was no question. My dad wanted me to get some sort of an education or at least a temporary education. So yeah, there was no way that I was going to sign in high school. So how was the college baseball experience for you? It was <laughs> probably the greatest part of my life other than playing professional baseball. We got to play a lot of games. I was fortunate enough to be able to uh, play the college world series for two years, 
because of playing in the College World Series. There was a in 1968, they had a, a tournament that was, we referred to it as the Olympic tournament that we got to play in Mexico City. I had a lot of opportunities because of college. I got a lot of exposure because of where I went to school and was able to perform at that particular level. I was fortunate, very fortunate. So you get drafted by the Phillies, I think it's in 69 in the second round. Was this something, like, the draft was so different then than what we what it is now. Now it's a showcase on TV. I'm sure it was a lot different. Were you thinking you might get drafted that high? Were, did you know the Phillies really liked you? Like, kind of take me back to, to the days leading up to that. It was really funny when you speak about that, and we just had a conversation, friends of I, friends of mine, and, and myself. Of course, it was on the golf course, but we were talking about how I got drafted and such, and how did the Phillies pick me? Well, again, like I said, I had a lot of teams talking to me about playing professional baseball. I never, even though I really wanted to do it, I never really thought about being drafted. I don't know how I was going to become a professional player, but I, you know, I never thought about the draft. Well, one day in, this was in 1969, we were playing in a, uh, a ball game against some team on the road. And my coach called, called me into the dugout and he had me sit down and there was a gentleman sitting next to him and he introduced me to this individual. And his name was Lou Kahn. He was a hierarchy, some kind of a, a big shot in, in the Phillies minor league organization. I had never spoken with anyone from the Phillies. He was the first. And He spoke with me and talked with me. We had a conversation for, I'm going to say maybe 15 minutes. I don't remember exactly what the conversation was, but obviously it was about baseball. And the next thing you know, my coach said, thanks. I went back out into the field. Well, after the ball game, coach called me over and he was talking to me. He says, well, what do you think? I says, I don't understand what you mean. About what? He says, about the Phillies. I said, what about them? I don't really want to get drafted by the Phillies. I said, they're worth ball coming in the in Major League Baseball, both leagues. And he looked at me and, and said, that's the kind of team that you want to play for. He said, because that's the kind of team that's going to get you to the big leagues the quickest. He, they're going to give you the best look. And so he kind of turned away from me. And then all of a sudden he stopped, turned back around and said, they're drafting you. That was it. That's how I found out the Phillies were going to draft, but I had no idea where I was going to get drafted. I found out about it in the, in the, in the College World Series when we were playing there in in, uh, in '69. So, how did you, did you get a call or did your coach tell you how how did you find out you'd actually been taken? Well, I want to say that someone called me from my hometown. I don't know if it was my brother or my uncle. That's how I found out. And then as soon as the first one told me about it. One thing led to another, and it, it seemed like I was constantly getting either messages or phone calls because we didn't have cell phones back right. then. You know, that they were telling me that, that I had been chosen by the Phillies and that I was their number two pick. And I, I just couldn't believe it. I mean, I, I, I was shocked. I couldn't, could not believe it. But, yeah, that's, that's how it all found, I found out about it. So you get drafted in 69. You start your pro career in 70. You actually start going right to double A, which is – pretty incredible even for a kid who's had the college success that you did that's a was that a did it did that feel like a big jump for you or did it feel natural well when I first got down to spring training that year in 1970 the first thing that I was told they put up a roster that was temporary 
but my name was, I was going to go play in, uh, I think it was Peninsula, which was their high A club at the time. That's where I was assigned to. So all of my practices and such, that's where I was. But on the field directly next to us was the double A club. And that coach was anti-Semitic. And he would watch practices, both practices. And I, apparently he had seen some things with me. And when the double-A the team would go on a road trip, he would always ask for extra players. Guys get hurt. Somebody only is going to play so many innings. I mean, so he would choose me. And I went a couple times, didn't play, didn't want to go anymore because I was losing out on playing time with the team I was supposed to be with. Well, all of a sudden he started putting me in ball games, and I was starting to have success. And then what happened was one of the fellows that I was coming in late innings for, he got hurt. It's the old, you know, the old story. Somebody gets hurt, opens the door for someone else. And that's exactly what happened. And next thing you know, we break camp. I'm on a double A club and guys that I had been drafted with and that I had been, they couldn't believe it, nor could I, but we go up North to Reading, Pennsylvania. And next thing you know, I, I become very, very good friends with the, the double A players and as it turns out, one of the players that's on the team is someone from my old neighborhood back in Illinois. And we had played hockey against each other. We had played American Legion ball against each other. And it was Bull, Lazinski. <laughs> that's amazing. Yes, it is. Very. What? You had, you mentioned College World Series. You guys went to Mexico City. I'm curious, after all that high-level competition you had during college playing in Reading, Pennsylvania, playing in the Eastern league, long bus rides and all, did it almost feel like a, a step down as far as attention and pageantry? Well, it did. It did because when you're in college and you're playing in the, like the college world series or playing in Mexico city, it's like, you're right. There was a lot of people at ball games. There weren't that many people at ball games, you know, playing in, in, uh, in the Eastern League, especially in the teams that went to, uh, or parks rather, we went to that didn't have teams that were very good at the time. The thing that got me the most was that when the first day we were on a road trip and they gave us meal money. Oh, I couldn't believe that. I, you know, I, I couldn't wait for my meal money. I'm thinking to myself, what are we going to have? Where are we going to go? And, this and, that. and all of a sudden, we're gone for five days. Guy gives me an envelope with $25 in cash. I says, what's this? He says, that's your five-day meal money. I said, $25? I said, yeah, $5 a day is what we got double A in 1970. When I was playing college ball, when we were in the, in the World Series, College World Series, now I probably shouldn't say this because it's something that at the time we weren't supposed to be doing, but I got $25 a day meal money. Plus, my coach would go one, two, three, four, throw a set of car keys. Here's your car. We had a car and $25 a day per player, meal money. The guys that I played with, double A, they couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe that I was, that I had this kind of, they thought I was lying for the whole time. And then they stated, wait till you go to AAA. There'll be so much more money. Yeah, went up to $7.50. A lot of pizzas, a lot of hot dogs. That's what we ate. So you mentioned Greg Lazinski. You're you're coming up with a group 
in that time frame, you're talking, you know, I think Bo was probably already in the bigs by then. Bob Boone, obviously Mike Schmidt, some real legends in, in Philly's lore. What was it like playing, you know, kind of climbing the ladder with those guys? Well, it, I felt that I was able to compete with them. Booney was there first year in 1970, was only there for a short period of time because he had obligations for the service. He was in, uh, I guess, the National Guard. He was gone. He had to go to boot camp and a whole bit, so I really didn't get to play much with him. But playing with Bull, it was great. I mean, it, it was really, it was, it was great. Schmitty, Schmitty didn't come until 71. Now, I had played against Mike Schmidt in college because he was at the University of Ohio. And of course, we beat them two years in a row. And of course, I'd never let him live that down. Two years in a row in the uh, in the playoffs to get to the World Series. So uh, he was one of my first roommates in one of his first roommates anyway. Uh, when he got to play pro pro baseball in in seventy one, wrote only for a short period of time. We had different ideas, but we remained friends. We're still friends. It was yeah, it was an honor to play with with those guys to see how they had matured how much better they had gotten, how they became big league players. It was quite an honor. I, you know, I, I think about that a lot and was very, very fortunate to be in the same era and on the same team as those players. You make your major league debut May 4th, 1973. Do you remember how you were told you were going up to the big leagues? We were in Tacoma, Washington. I think I was leading the Pacific Coast League in hitting. I was, I just couldn't couldn't miss the baseball. It swung and hit everything. And Bunning, next thing you know, I get a phone call from Jim Bunning and tells me he wants me to come down to the room. It's probably just prior to going to the uh, ballpark for the for tonight's game. And Bunning and was your manager? At that time, yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So he calls me in and he's and he, uh, talking to me and he states, uh, I need you to get in touch with your wife if she's still in Eugene and tell her to Pack the car up because you are going to Philadelphia. He said, the only thing that I dread is that they're not going to play you. I want you to go there. He says, I argued with you playing. And if they weren't going to play you, then I don't want you to be taken. But I was on cloud nine. I tried to throw. But that's how I was told. So how long between when you're called up and your debut? Is it a couple of days? Let's just say it was a Monday. And I think I was in the game on either Tuesday night. I think it was the next day. So what do, what, do you, a, what do you remember about your big league debut? I think it came against 100% the Braves. sure, but I believe it was the next. Yes, it did. It was cold when we got there, when I got to the ballpark. Uh, it was funny because all through my uh, spring training career, the number that I wore was number 29. And so I get to my locker. My name's hanging above my locker. And I go there and I start there at the time. His name was Kenny Bush. I, I said, it's the wrong uniform. He goes, Look at the inside. He says, your name's written on the inside. It's Rogosinski, right? I says, yeah. He says, that's your new uniform. You're not 29 anymore. <laughs> but we get out to the ballpark, and, and we start doing our getting loose and all and prep for the game. Well, as it turns out, it's freezing cold, and it's getting colder. All of a sudden, about, I guess, the sixth inning or so, Ozark comes up to me and tells me to grab a bat on pinch hitting. I can't remember what the score was at the time. But as I'm walking out into the on-deck circle, he pulls me back and he says, you have one pitch. He says, then after that, I want you to move the runner. Okay. So I did. I got up, took a swing, followed the ball back. Next pitch, laid the ball down first base, moved the runner over. Stayed at first base 
or rather, I got thrown out of first base, came in the dugout, and put my jacket on right away. Well, the game was, I think, 20 innings long. <laughs> so that's the thing that I remember most about that first game. That, and I always, every time I see Lazinski, I always tell him that I'm pretty sure I pinch hit for you in that ball game. <laughs> <laughs> What's great, and I actually had some fun and went through to try to figure out guys you pinch hit for, because we'll talk mm-hmm. about. And by my count, two of the three players, position players, not pitchers, you pinch hit for the most were Larry Boa and Mike Schmidt. Okay, that, that makes sense. Yeah, I think uh, you, you pinch hit for Mike Schmidt four times into 1973, and you went two for three with a walk. <laughs> well, I, the reason that I was probably doing that, obviously, was because either Schmidt was having a bad day or maybe Schmidt had, had some uh, issues, injury issues or something along those lines. Boa, at the time, was leading off a lot. Cash was, I think, hitting second. So, yeah, I could see a pitcher would get on base or somebody would pinch it, and the next thing you know, they need somebody else to try to hit. So that would be one of the reasons why I believe that they would pull Boa out and put me in. First big league hit is uh, the day after you make your debut. Do you remember it? Yeah, it was a ground ball in the hole on the right side. It was off to Carl Martin. It was probably a thousand hopper, one of those deals. They were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. But thank God for AstroTurf. (laughs) Now, you talked about Bunning was concerned that you weren't going to play. And you played, but you were almost exclusively pinch hitting as – as a rookie, which is really, un- it's number one, really unusual for a team to lean on a rookie for that. And number two, it is really unusual for a rookie to be as successful as you were. I think you still hold the team record for pinch hits as a rookie with 16. How, I just, it's just got to be so difficult as a young kid trying to make it in the big leagues and you're getting one shot at the title every other, every third night and you're facing pitchers you'd never face stuff like that. How difficult was it to do? Well, I, I'm going to tell you kind of a background of pinch hitting. And again, one of the fellows that happened to see this, and I think this is one of the reasons that allowed me to have an opportunity in the big league camp a couple of years later, Andy Semenik. Andy Semenik, I was not a starter on their triple, on the AAA club in 1972, but I was fortunate enough to be called upon to pinch hit quite a bit, and I had quite a bit of success there. And I think, again, why he did this, I, I have no idea. But he gave me an opportunity for another avenue to get to the big leagues. And I think that that kind of passed on. So when I went to camp in 1973, it was the same thing. There were players that were playing in a ball game, And the next thing you know, I was one of the guys that got thrown on the bus to play the last couple innings of a game on the road. And all of a sudden, I start having some success. I start hitting the ball as, as a pinch hitter to begin with and then getting in and playing a couple more innings. Uh, once I got to the big leagues, it didn't see, other than the fact that I didn't know most of the pitchers that I was hitting against, I was a student. I sat there. I knew who I was going to probably get an opportunity to hit against. It was mostly the relievers because my, my part of the game was towards the end of the game, seventh, eighth, ninth innings. And I would watch to see how the pitchers would throw and to see the way that their ball moved and such. And I think that gave me a, a, a Big, big advantage. I would see how they would, uh, the pitchers would throw to players in certain situations, how they would lead pitcher, lead hitters off. And the advantage that I had, I thought, being a rookie, 
was they didn't know me. So I felt that they were going to try to get a strike on me immediately. And what the, was the pitch they were going to try to do? They were going to try to throw a fastball by me. And I liked anything hard. Fastballs, sliders, those are pitches that I really, really had uh, good success with. The off-speed, the change-ups, the big looping curveballs, I never really hit. And uh, hopefully all I could do was foul those off. But I, I thought that that was the mentality that I had. Now, you talk about being able to pinch it maybe once or twice in a week or every other couple of days. Well, to keep your mind straight, because playing a professional sport, especially to be a hitter, a successful hitter, if I hit the ball hard, I did my job. Now, I didn't do it completely, but I know that I did the right thing. So it kept my head screwed on straight. There are so many guys that, let's say, for instance, that would hit the ball on the nose, and the next thing you know, they're got their head down, they're walking. Well, that's all I think about. I couldn't afford to do that. I had to be able to keep a positive attitude and be aggressive up at the plate. So that's that was my theory on how to, to be a pinch hitter. Talked about your first hit. You had two big league home runs, both in that 73. And I'll tell you what, if you're only going to hit two home runs, the, the resume for the two you put together is impressive. First one, you take Ferguson Jenkins deep. And the second one is uh, off Diego Segui against the Cardinals. You're down 6-5, two-run bomb in the bottom of the eighth. Ends up being the, the game winner, 7-6. to six. Talk to me first of all about the – do you remember – I am assuming you remember them both vividly. Talk to me about the, the taking Ferguson Jenkins out of the yard. Well, I came up to pinch it against, obviously, Ferguson Jenkins. He throws hard, had really good stuff, good curveball slider. But I set him up for that pitch. And I set up the catcher, and I can't remember who it was. I want to say it was Randy Hundley, but I, I'm not 100% sure it was. But – I could tell that he was watching where my feet were when I went up. So what I ended up doing, Jenkins kept throwing the ball away, and I just kept flicking my bat and following it off, following it off. And I was every time I would do that, I would lean farther over the plate. Well, the next thing you know, I moved up to where I was standing almost on home plate because I was taking a guess. This is where he was going to try to come in. And I was sitting on that fastball on the inside part, and that's where he threw it. And I hit it in the upper deck. He never threw me an inside fastball again. Never. <laughs> What's that trip around the bases like? You just took Ferguson Jenkins. I mean, you don't know he's a Hall of Famer at that point, but you know he's a, a top pitcher. You just took him into the upper deck. I mean, what's that like? Well, the one thing that I always remembered my dad telling is that you never embarrass anyone. I was shocked when the ball – I never felt the ball come off my bat. And when I saw it ricocheting out of the seats and coming back onto the field was incredible. It was gone and back on the field before I had a couple steps out of the, out of the batter's box. I put my head down and took a lazy trot around the bases, never looked at the pitcher, never tried to uh, embarrass him any kind of way. I'm sure he was mad enough, touched home plate and was thrilled to death. Did the same thing on the second home run that I, I pinched it for. I, that home run that I hit, against Diego Segui, he had made me look so bad on two breaking balls and then hung the third one. He threw me three in a row. It's the old adage that you never throw three of the same pitches in a row in the same spot. And this one hung and I just took him deep. That was it. It was the right center field. 
yeah, I was a game winner. I know that uh, Daryl Brandon at that time had only won one ball game, and that was that was the winning hit for him that year. That was his last year with the Phillies. Time for a break on one-on-one. We will have more with former Philly Mike Rogozinski right after this. Hey, everybody, it's Cherry Gregg here. You may know me around town as KYW News Radio's community affairs reporter, but every week I produce and host Flashpoint, a podcast where we highlight the hot topics in Philadelphia, local newsmakers, and changemakers burning things up in our region. From gerrymandering to gender equality and policing in schools, we'll walk you through the flames on Flashpoint. It's available wherever you downloaded this podcast that you're listening to now. So subscribe. Thanks so much. And we are back on one-on-one, continuing our conversation with former Philly Mike Rogozinski. How are you feeling as this year's going on? You're you're having this unusual success for a young kid as a, a pinch hitter. You're in the big leagues. You know, how much fun is this? Is this 1973 season for you? When you have success, you you always have a good time. It, it, it was it was terrific. Well, first of all, being in the big leagues, going from town to town, which I had never been into. I mean, seen before, uh, eating at different restaurants, being, uh, you know, with the teammates that I had on that club, playing against players that uh, I only dreamt about or had watched on television. Those are things that they were incredible. And then again, like, like you say, rather, that having success made that even, even greater. 16 pinch hits. I mentioned it's a rookie. It's a Phillies rookie record. And do you ever think about the idea that I think we're eventually going to have the designated hitter across the board. And there is a good chance that that is a record that's never going to be broken. I think records are made to be broken. Somebody's going to break it. Uh, and what I, I, I hope somebody does break it because it was hard enough to achieve to begin with anyway. I don't, I don't like the designated hitter. I think it takes too much of the strategy of the game out of, out of the game. I think that you have to have a pitcher hit. I think that if he does crazy things like throw at hitters and such, he has to be thrown at also, which the designated hitter would not, you know, it wouldn't happen. The strategy of the game changes so much. I just, I just really, really believe that uh, it should stay the way it is, but you're probably correct. It's going to change because people want to see offense. They don't want to see defense, but I'm, I'm in the camp with you. I love one of the reasons I gravitated as a youngster. The baseball was the strategy. And I think the designated hitter removed 75% of that, if not more. That's correct. Yeah. So you ended up spending three seasons, parts of three seasons with the Phillies, 73, 74, 75, 73. I, you got your, your, your most run as a player. And it's interesting. You go through your, your career and it's, because of the success you had as a pinch hitter, almost all your appearances were pinch hitters. Your last two games in the big leagues, in 75, you started and played the entire game. And both games, you know, once again, like with the home runs, if you're going to have this this limited resume, man, is yours incredible. Your last hit, two-run single off a guy named Tom Seaver. And the night before that, you're the starting left fielder as Steve Carlton throws a one-hitter against the Mets. Do you remember those games? I don't remember the game with lefty pitching, all right? Uh, But I do remember playing the last game of the season and hitting against Tom Seaver. I really, really enjoyed playing against Seaver because for some reason or another, he was the kind of pitcher that threw what I liked. He threw fastballs, he threw sliders, 
In fact, the one hit that I remember off of him, we had bases loaded, and I think Schmitty was on first base. And I hit a ball that ended up hitting the top of the fence. I thought it was going to be a grand slam and bounced back. But that would, everybody only, I think, moved up a base or two. Yeah, those two games. I don't remember the game with, with lefty pitching. So do you feel like, I mean, and we talked about the talent that was emerging on this team during this time. What was the level of frustration that you never got a shot to, to be a guy, an everyday guy, at a certain point? Well, I, I think because of the success that I had as a pinch hitter, I think that I got put into that mold. That's all I was going to be able to do. You know, I always, I always told uh, some of the people, uh, the big shots in, in the Phillies organization, that uh, I really felt I could hit in the big leagues, but you never gave me an opportunity to play. For what reason? I, I don't know. I Like again, I, I rationalized, I think, because of the success that I had coming off the bench. That's where I was stuck. And it's, uh, you know, I, uh, I don't have an answer for that. I was thrilled with that to play with all those great players that I was fortunate enough to come up through the minor leagues and play with. And some of the ones that uh, came from other organizations, it, it was just a great life. I, you know, I had a, I had a great run had a great time, but I always had that question, you know, I, nobody gave me a chance to play and nobody could give me an answer. Why? So I leave it at that. And 75 was your last year in pro baseball? It looks like you got on. We talked about the games in the big leagues and you split in the minors between double and triple A. The Phillies had sold me, I think, in 1975 to Japan. And back then, I, I had only known a few players from the United States that had gone to Japan and were successful or had a reasonable time. Most of the players that, let's say, for instance, loved going to Japan were all single players. Well, I was married. I had a young son at the time. And from what I understood from speaking to the people from Japan, they were saying that there were only two non-nationals on each team at that time. Well, my wife doesn't get along with the other guy's wife. I mean, it's living hell. I, I spoke to Don Money about his stint in, in uh, Japan. And he told me, he, we talked, he said, Rogue, he says, you aren't going to believe this. He said, they were throwing money at me like crazy. But it was the, it was living hell. I said, "What are you talking about?" He said, "Every time I came home from a game, my family was asking when were we were going to go home, just for that simple reason." Now I don't know Don's wife, uh, but apparently she just didn't get along with either the people that were there or the other non-national that was on the ball club. But he said, "I could I I could only stay there for half a season." He said, "Because it was it was driving me crazy. I I had to leave. We had to get out of there." So I, those are all things that I thought about. Would I have done something different if, if I think back about it now? Yeah, I probably would have. I, I, I might have taken the chance. But things are different now than what they were back in, you know, in the 70s. So I, it's a kind of a I, – I don't know how to answer that question correctly. Well, see, so, you know, were you, did you, were you comfortable not playing anymore, like period? The hardest thing for me about leaving baseball was – going to the clubhouse every day, seeing the guys. That's, I, as far as I was concerned, that was the hardest thing, knowing that at 2.30 I was already in, in uniform and, and, you know, in the clubhouse, uh, getting ready to go out to, to go through and, and uh, get ready for a ball game. That was the hard part about it. It took quite a while for me to kind of forget about that part of the life. But I remember it every time we go back 
you know, to the ballpark for uh, uh, alumni night and such. Uh, I think about it. Yeah, that was a hard, hard decision to make, uh, but it was something that I had to do because the Phillies, Phillies would not release me. I had an opportunity, a great opportunity, once I got out of baseball, to go to the Dodgers. When we had played AAA in, in uh, I guess it was 72, they couldn't get me out. We were there for I don't know how many games, but I, I, I had like seven or eight hits in that, that short series and had a great playoff series against them. Well, the Dodgers needed somebody at that time as a left-handed hitter. And they asked, they wanted me to come. And I said that I would come to spring training. I said, you'd have to make a trade because the Phillies have already told me flat out they are not going to release me. Make a trade, get me there. And I said, but here's the thing. I'm either going to make the team or I'm not. I'm not going to the minor leagues. Everything was set. Everything was in motion. Two days before spring training, I got a phone call from uh, Al Campanis, who was the general manager of the Dodgers at the time. He calls me up and tells me, he says, Rogue, he says, I'm sorry, we tried everything. He said, they will not let you go. And I, I said, for what? Why? He said, I don't know. They just will not let you go. We've tried to do everything, but it wouldn't happen. So whether Al was lying to me or not, I don't know. The Phillies, every year I'd ask him for my release. And I think it finally, I finally did get it. I don't know, it might have been 10 years after I was done playing. So where was I going to go? Did, I mean, how did that sit with you? you know, over those years, you know, that you're still in your prime, you still could be playing. I mean, it, it seems to me it would be tough not to have bitterness build up. Yeah, it, it, it did. And I think that that bitterness kind of waned through the course of years because those same people that I was bitter against were the same people that actually gave me an opportunity to play. I, I guess that was the way I was raised. And, and I always think about, you know, you don't ever want to burn bridges, uh, that was just the feeling that I had. I, I used to, I used to see Danny Ozark and some of the alumni uh, golf tournaments, you know, in the area. And I'd always ask him. And of course he always blamed somebody else. So I would ask somebody else like Paul Owens. And of course, Paul would always blame somebody else. Okay. You know, we voted. I mean, we, there's not just one individual that made that decision. Yeah. Well, nobody would, take responsibility. So I left it at that because I like both guys. Could you see the success that was coming the second half of that decade and uh, culminating in 80 as a player looking around, like obviously the team's getting better and they got better like the three years you were there, but did you feel like they were on the cusp of, of really taking that step to becoming an elite team? Yeah, I, I believe it or not, I did. But then again, I was fortunate enough to go through my, baseball career playing for teams that were extremely successful. I mean, minor leagues, college and such, such like that. But yes, I did. I, I, I can tell you the first year in 73, we had been on a road trip to uh, Atlanta and I think we swept Atlanta. And the next thing you know, we're flying back into Philadelphia and doors open up. I think we were on a charter flight and all you could hear was this music playing. And as we got off, here was a band that people were so excited about us being, I think at the time that might've only been for a day that we were in first place. Those were signs to me that we were getting better. You know what I'm saying? Not because of the way the people treated us, but we just, we were, we were getting better. We ended up in last place. I think at 73, uh, the Mets won. And I think we were 10 games out, but we seemed that we felt that we were always in 
every game. And I think with that attitude and with the players that we had, yes, we were getting better year after year after year. So, yeah, I thought I thought that it would be a short-lived run to get to uh, the playoffs and to the and ultimately to the World Series. You kind of answered this earlier, but I'll ask you again. When you think about your three years as a Philly, your three years in the big leagues, when you think memories, is it the, the clubhouse like you mentioned? Is it that hour before the game sitting around playing cards or whatever, that hour after the game? Is that what bubbles to the top first, or is it moments – you know, the home run off of Diego Sigui, stuff like that. I think when you ask me what is the hardest thing for me to realize about once I decided that I was going to stop playing was being with the guys, that, that part. I think that that clubhouse atmosphere, being with the guys, was the whole thing. Games included, post-games, pre-games, the whole bit. I think I enjoyed as much. you got to realize that Ruley Carpenter was the owner of the, of the Phillies when I played in 3, 4, and 5, I think. And it would not be unusual for Ruley to come downstairs and be in our clubhouse and sit down with, let's say, Bull and Mike Anderson and myself, Larry Boa. And and we would just kind of replay the game and go through different strategies. He was more of a listener, obviously. He didn't talk about, you know, what should have been done and such. But I think he wanted the insight of of what we felt as, as players and what we might have been able to uh, accomplish or what we might have been able to try to be a little bit more successful. But I don't think you have that anymore. I don't, I don't think that those are things that, that uh, I definitely don't have it. I don't have my boss when I was working, come to my house and sit down with me and the family and, you know, speak about our experiences on a job. But those are things that I was fortunate enough to live through and, and experience with teammates and who were friends of mine. Those are things that were the hardest, hardest for me to, to give up. I hope I answered your question. I hope no. I didn't go around it. No, no, not at all. Did you, what did you do once baseball was over? What was your, what was your career path after baseball? I needed a job. I just bought a new home. I needed to do some work and I was fortunate enough to be able to uh, get a job selling furniture, believe it or not, in Philadelphia. And I brought a lot of the players that I had worked or played with to uh, to the store, I played. I worked for a place called uh, Nate Ben's Reliable in Philadelphia. Played. I stayed there for I don't know 13, 14 years, and then after that, I moved to another furniture store in, in South Jersey. From there, the last job that I had, I worked for a uh, a tool company, Camden Tool in Camden, New Jersey, and then I retired after that. Those were the jobs that I had after baseball. Nothing really exciting. How long? How often? Because you have a name that I think. If Philly fans watched you during those years, you have a name that's going to stand out. How often were you getting, are you the same dot, 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 or, you know, after you stopped playing? Two years ago, we were at a, at a Phillies ball game and spring training. We we're sitting there and, and up in the stands, it was my wife and myself and some of her friends and my friends. And the next thing you know, somebody came up to me and looked at me and stated, you look so familiar. You know, it's the old adage. We spoke for a few seconds, and she goes, I think I know you. I says, all right, are you Mike Rogozinski? I said, yes. It was it was hard to believe. I mean, that somebody would – I said, always used to tell people, you must have been a real good fan to remember me. I says, I'm not Lisinski or there's Boa down there on the field. You know, I said, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate that. That was quite an honor. Thank you. Mike Rogozinski, thanks so much for taking the time. This was great. Thanks, Matt. Had a great time. 
And that will do it for one-on-one. Want to thank former Philly Mike Rogozinski for being our guest this week. If you like the podcast, if you want to help us out, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave a rating and a review. Now you can follow the show on Twitter at one-on-one pod. You can follow me on Twitter as well at MattLeon1060. Thank you so much for listening and be sure to join us again next week when we bring you another conversation with someone you should know more about.